0: Journalist Vincent Bevins explains how a US sponsored disinformation campaign was used around the world with deadly results.
1: The Jakarta method is the intentional mass murder of leftists or people accused of being leftists. And this was employed throughout the world in the Cold War. And the most important part of this story, you no, know, not the first event in detail is the U.S.-backed mass murder of approximately 1 million innocent civilians in Indonesia in 1965. This massacre was one of the most important turning points of the Cold War, one of the biggest successes for the West and its allies, and it was such a big success that it inspired movements elsewhere around the world, specifically in Latin America, to copy the tactics employed there. And they used the word Jakarta to denote what they were going to do to their own leftists or accused leftists, which was to kill them.
2: That was a clip from Inside Edition. And if you can find find the full nine-minute story featuring the Jakarta Method author, Vincent Bevins, in the show notes or in the chat if you're with us live tonight. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode, Nashwa Khan and Shadi Ali were the first North American Muslims to interview Bevins, uh, a conversation that'll be out later this month on their excellent show Habibti Please. Nashua's in Mississauga and Shadi is in Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, you guys.
0: Hi. Hello.
2: And Henry Lee spoke with Bevins on the most recent episode of his outstanding narrative interview hybrid podcast, Deathnography. Henry's in Toronto tonight. Welcome, Henry.
3: Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us.
2: We thought it'd be interesting to talk about the book tonight and to explore some of Indonesia's history, to add some context to this weird Western rhetoric that we often see around anti-communism in this country, specifically in regards to what Canadians are soon going to see in our nation's capital. We'll be talking about the Victims of Communism Memorial in the second half of the show. Welcome to the audience. Uh, You guys stick around for the Q&A after the show, and please drop any questions you have in the chat. And thanks to Zayed Siddiqui for research on this episode. Nashua Shadi Henry, it's good to be with you guys. Hey.
0: Hey, it's great to be here on a
1: Thursday. (laughs) Yeah, excited to be here.
2: Totally good. And okay, so my full disclosure is that I haven't read the book. All of you guys have, you've interviewed the author. But um, I read a second-hand find by an author named Tarzi Vitachi, who wrote a book called The Fall of Sukarno in 1967. And it's a historical review of the era that was like, totally, uh, you know, mind blowing and how brutal it was. And, and and so reading this book, I was like appalled. So I was really excited to see the impact of Bevins's book uh, last year. And this year, um, I have been hosting a Korea studies podcast called the Korea file since 2012. So post-colonial history and American empire and how both of those things collide is something that I think about a lot uh, for the work I do. So before we get to discussing the book, um, let's begin a little bit by framing the conversation with historical context. Uh, Shadi, do you want to begin?
1: Yeah. So I think uh, the the natural starting place for this story uh, and kind of the way that that Bevins puts it is is he starts it right after World War II. Um, So Uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, In the immediate aftermath of World War II, you had uh, large sections of primarily Western Europe that were giving up uh, their colonial holdings, both uh, by choice and more realistically by force. Um, But uh, so these new states sort of saw themselves as free to chart their own destinies. Um, But at the same time, the United States, that was sort of the only major power that wasn't impacted or severely harmed uh, by World War II, really saw these states as up for grabs.
2: Right, and so Nashua, what can you tell me? Like like we, we hear the phrase third world and now it's become kind of not something that we are supposed to say and we talk about the global south. But at this time, um, w- did that mean something different? Like the first world of course is the Atlantic West and you know, Western Europe and North America, second world was Soviet Union. So third world was talking about whom?
0: Yeah so so Bevan's uh, is great at explaining that the third world was originally intended to refer to a third attempt at creating a better world and like you said Andre so the first world refers to Atlantic West so western Europe and North America where we currently live and presently live second world refers to or referred to at the time the emerging Soviet Union and third world is all the other countries that were um, decolonizing after World War II. And the same way that the third estate in France rose up against the first and second estate to create a better world, more liberal, democratic, uh, bougie, bourgeoisie, Uh, the first and second estate, uh, yeah, the third world was uh, thought to be taking up the project of human emancipation. So sometimes um, people here, I would say, like, if you went to uh, post-secondary school, you're you're told not to talk about third world or say third world, because people assume it's third rate, uh, but it's, it's not actually what it means. Uh, third world means um, a final act of history, but also like back then there used to be like third worldists, uh, which I would say are now like people who are anti-imperialist or internationalists. So I think um, it's, it's really like a, a privileged and ignorant position to assume when somebody says third world or especially if it's somebody not from the Imperial core, like when they're saying third world, they're not saying it to be like degrading. Uh, it had a very different meaning uh, and evolutions of worlds. Uh, But yeah, we can get into that a bit more later.
2: And I remember that you and I, I think we're complaining about the Verso book sale and how we always end up getting too many volumes when it's like 70% off. (laughs) And I think we both bought the Algiers Capital of the Third World book, um, which I haven't read yet. But like, I'm looking forward to that because I think it's going to help me as someone who needs to learn a lot more about this to frame what that meant at that time. And uh, okay, cool. Thank you. So I want to get to A little bit of just a brief history of colonial Indonesia and then Henry's gonna explain to us a little bit about a very important conference that happened at that time. So basically the thing to understand about Indonesia is that the Dutch occupied it even in a tenuous way for like 445 years and then the Japanese kind of took it over under the sphere of influence and at first the Indonesians were like oh this rules like finally people who aren't the Dutch and, but actually it sucked because the Japanese were incredibly cruel and terrible. Um, and the Japanese occupation during World War II and during the Pacific war actually brought about the fall of the colonial state in Indonesia. And it kind of set up, uh, it set things up for what was gonna occur after. So basically the Japanese lose the war. Uh, there's four years of battling against the Dutch who are trying to take back their you know, um, colonial uh, territory. And then finally, they get kicked out. And in 1949, there is the um, uh, official, like, official beginning of, of the new Indonesia. Um, and that's where the nationalist leader Sakarno comes in. So, um, Henry, Sakarno was one of the major leaders in the national struggle for liberation. Uh, tell us about the Bandung Conference and, and what that was and, and how that was kind of a really important and exciting thing uh, uh, at that time.
3: Yeah, so I, I think I would just start by pointing out, so... Sukarno, at first, uh, he was actually favored by a lot of uh, Western nations, or uh, at least they they were hopeful that Sukarno would kind of lead Indonesia in sort of like a left, sorry, not left, uh, liberal liberal capitalist sort of direction. Um, but he quickly started going in this, uh, you know, uh, he he organized a conference called the the, the Bandung Conference where he uh, got. Um, African and Asian nations, which were uh, decolonizing uh, together to sort of form a, what became known as the non-aligned movement, neither aligned with uh, Washington nor with Moscow, but kind of doing their own thing. And Bevins was telling me that at this conference, sorry, uh, about half the population of the world was represented. And um, this was kind of a shock to Western spectators who were like, oh my gosh, these Formerly subservient nations have suddenly r- risen up and it is half the world and uh, they're getting organized and now there's economic and cultural ties being created between these leaders and uh, these nations.
2: So, so that, that m- was, must have been an incredibly hopeful moment. And of course, we're talking then about like Mao era China and I guess, yeah. what, who was leading India at the time? Nehru, I think. Nehru, yeah, okay. And so, right, so this was just like major. And so for, uh, for our friend uh, Sakarno to be um, actually, you know, participating and in, in kind of making this happen would have been like you know, like huge, right? So this is Indonesia stepping into the spotlight and and really like after, again, 400 years of the Dutch hanging out on their tori- territory. And so Shadi, what about um, what about the USSR and the sort of like what the Cold War would have, how that would have influenced things like the conference and, and like this, this period sort of before before the main subject of the Jakarta Method, which is the 60s, which were just like terrible. Um, but leading up to that, what, what was what was the Cold War framing? Uh, what, what can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I think uh, it, it's interesting because uh, historically, at least in, as an American, you're kind of taught that the, the Soviet Union had a really, really expansionist view uh, that mirrored the United States, um, but just sort of a communist version of that. In practice, one of the things that Bevins talks about is that it's actually a much more inward looking state. Really, even from, from Stalin on, I mean, Stalin was very afraid of the United States um, and and often would uh, recommend that that uh, communist movements actually stand down. He, he did so in Greece, for instance. So th- there's a bit of a, 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 an incongruity, I think, between uh, how they're seen in the United States, and and sort of, sort of how they actually um, played a role, um, I think uh, Stalin had a very specific view of what his sphere of influence was. It was the the Eastern Bloc, um, and as Bevins kind of talks about, um, uh, moving into the that that Eastern Bloc um, from the United States perspective was was really not possible. I mean, they sent spies in, and those people would never come back. I mean, it was rock solid there, but. When you start to look outside of that, really anywhere outside of the Eastern Bloc, uh, Stalin and later Khrushchev and so on, really didn't see that as their uh, sphere of influence. And sometimes that meant just sitting things out uh, like in Indonesia, but in other cases, it actually meant actively discouraging communist movements Hmm. uh, and and encouraging them uh, as Pivadzins kind of talks about in uh, Chile, for instance, uh, encouraging communists there to, to not take up arms, not be radical, uh, to work within the electoral process, you know, I think Bevins is is uh, kind of reserves judgment um, and 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 is sort of maybe gentle in his evaluation of the Soviets, but uh, I, I think a lot of communists in the global South pay the price, uh, and I think that that there's a, a very stark difference between how the Soviets approached things, um, who had I think substantially more resources, and Mao's China, uh, who had uh, quite a few less resources, but but more of an eagerness to help hmm. a lot of those burgeoning communist movements in the global South.
2: Okay, interesting. Yeah, and I'm just thinking that like, one of the things that I love about this book uh, is how it is able to demystify certain things like like this this notion of, of the Soviet Union uh, being quite as influential as maybe the United States wanted to uh, make it out to be. Uh, so Nashua, how about the role of women in Indonesia at this time. Uh, what about feminist movements? And and what about how that uh, w- that was affected uh, during this this early Sukarno era?
0: Yeah. So the role of women and gender in this book is, is something that struck me again and again. And when Shadi and I were reading it for our own interview, um, I'm a Muslim feminist. Obviously, I have my biases, but um, it was interesting because it, it's been pointed out how if you Google feminism in Indonesia, the wiki entry doesn't even mention the Gerwani And the Gurwani were the largest feminist movement of the time. And they're a large feminist movement that was just asking for very basic uh, rights that today would be laughable. And Vincent has said this too, like basic rights, like can women be educated? Um, can women have rights within marriage? Uh, can women work outside of the house and be respected at work? Um, and yet they were vilified in this way that like um, in the West uh, kind of is, is mimi like the whole like witchcraft thing, like witchcraft feminism like Daughters of the Witches You Didn't Burn. Uh, when like white girls do that shit, but um, but but it was like it was they were actually painted as witches, so they were a part of the vilification and extermination program. And what laid the groundwork for the beginning of it was painting any feminist in Indonesia this way. And so what's um, interesting is one like this is how you start like an extermination is you you paint certain subgroups uh, that are radical, so the communists and the feminists as too radical, uh, and then they're painted as painted as witches. There were witch hunts. Um, and there is a, a continuous uh, three-hour movie that still gets played to remind people that they were witches. So it's, it's something that they want to keep in public memory, uh, this extermination of feminists in Indonesia. And as Muslims, it's interesting because some of the most diverse and important Muslim thoughts on feminism and Muslim thinkers on feminism still do come from Indonesia. Um, even, like, even though the Arab world might lay claim to like, Muslim feminisms right now, uh, the groundwork was done in Indonesia. However, in Indonesia, women still can't publicly identify as feminists. It's like kind of a haunting. Um, Vincent has written about this in his book and had talked to Shadi and I about it. Like um, eventually some people will say they were but there's, there's a lot of trauma attached because of how they were imprisoned, how feminism was kind of exterminated as well as in social movement. And I can't even imagine if back then they were they were having these asks, what it would have been like if there hadn't been this extermination program and vilification of feminism there um but it it does bring us to like the kind of question about um what it would have meant to be more radical and like because they were peaceful right they were unarmed just like the communist movement there was an unarmed movement it was a movement that believed in doing this work through conferences and popular education which i'm a big fan of popular education but Um, clearly you can you can kill a people in their popular education in a way that you can't if they resist using multiple methods no
2: no, totally but also in your show notes you write that the movie was a three-hour movie about which is cutting dicks off which is so on the nose and like fucked up Um, okay and then what about what about also in your show notes can you talk about the Obama connection just briefly
0: yeah 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 I can and Shadi feel free to jump in because Shadi and I both were like fascinated by this part so Shadi jump in after me but Um, Obama's mom was in Indonesia for a very long time. And Obama witnessed so much of the atrocity and the aftermath of it um, growing up. Um, And and there's like conversations of him with um, a driver there and things like that as a child that he reflects on in his book. And so he knew better when he was in office. And it's almost as if him being there and seeing how successful an extermination program like that was, um, was something he knew and embodied in his time in office. And it And I I, like there's a lot of theories and like rumors that his mom is implicated um, in a lot of what went on. Um, But Shadi, feel free to jump in on this part.
1: I I mean, I think I think you nailed it. Um, The only thing maybe that I would even add uh, is is just that, uh, you know, I think I think a lot of uh, Obama apologists sort of have this position that that, um, you know, he didn't know or he uh, overestimated the strength of, of covert operations and and. The, the, the scale of it in the United States. Um, and it's, it's really difficult to contrast that with what he even says in, uh, I believe, Memories from My Father, um, one of his memoirs, uh, where he he talks about this stuff. And he says that he saw firsthand uh, exactly what happened in Indonesia and what it did to those people. And that that was a formative memory for him. And, and yet that it, it didn't, I mean, maybe it impacted his his foreign policy, but uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't convince me of it. Yeah. So
0: my, my personal interpretation is that like young Obama had a a very good understanding of what us foreign policy does and how destructive it is. And then, and then he was, yeah, he was president,
2: right? (laughs) Well, okay. That's super interesting to speculate on. I didn't actually know that that was going to come up at all. Super interesting. Okay. um, Back to sort of more historical Indonesia and Henry, you're going to weigh in a little bit about the communist party of Indonesia, but just to frame it for a second, when they, they were like buddies with Sukarno, they were like, like, everyone was a friend about pushing out the Dutch. And then they got rid of the Dutch and then suddenly people weren't friends in the same way, anymore. more. Uh, and the communist party was incredibly influential in uh, Indonesia, the biggest party, the biggest communist party in the world that wasn't actually in power. Um, so Henry, tell us a little bit more about the PKI.
3: So as, as you mentioned, there were, people weren't buddies anymore for a little while. Um, so uh, the uh, Madian Affair, uh, happened um, uh, after, after decolonization where uh, President Sukarno was actually involved in putting down a communist uprising in, Indone- in Indonesia, which makes it sort of interesting that the PKI later on was able to sort of cozy up to Sukarno and uh, actually had some influence in the nation. But it also uh, it is also interesting that the PKI was largely not armed. Um, that is a feature of the party that Bevins uh, writes about in the jakarta method which is really significant and uh the communist party of china actually warned the leader of the pki id i believe that he should uh, that the pki should arm themselves that uh, they should look towards other examples of social democratic or democratic socialist movements being put down uh, by force by ruling the ruling classes in various nations and the pki did not the words of the the Communist Party of China. This is one contributing factor in the uh, the mass killings and how brutally effective. Those right.
2: Were. Well, and it's interesting that Mao would would want to like would want to like touch base with them about that and be like, no, you should probably arm yourself because. Yeah. During the Kuomintang era in China, when the, when the communists in China were basically just kind of like having to run away a lot, there was a lot of mass killings. And so they had very much experienced that and were aware of how it can affect uh, building the party. Um, So uh, moving Forward after 1965. Now let's let's talk about this transition. This this bloody, violent transition from Sukarno to Suharto. So Sukarno had been in power for 22 years, like basically from the post-colonial era right up until uh, there's a military takeover and the beginning of these targeted mass killings of communists and leftists under Suharto, another uh, military guy. So um, chapters seven to nine of the book explore this this period, which is like so appalling. And as many as 4 million Indonesians were killed, tortured or, or raped And and following this violence, it's the model of the Jakarta me- method in which top-ranking, mid-ranking, low-ranking, and even non-party members were rounded up and disappeared in various ways. And these torture methods were taught uh, to right-wing authoritarian coup regimes by the, by CIA-trained officers or even by the CIA itself. And some French uh, officers who had been part of the war against the Algerian independence movement in the 60s were brought in to teach South Americans how to torture communists as well. So um, this is kind of like the big, the big part of the book, right? And so... I guess I'm a little curious, Nashua. For you going into reading this book, was that history something that you were aware of? Was this book something that kind of like opened it up more? If you were aware of it, what was the impact of of reading this and how Bevins was able to uh, explain and 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 uh, write about?
0: Yeah. So. Um... For people who don't know, I'm from Lushda. It's a border town with Algeria. Um, A lot of my stuff comes from that kind of history and like my grandparents and they're they're pretty radical revolutionary people. Um, Yeah, I I think uh, Algeria was like a a microcosm testing ground for so much of what's gone on um, in attempted extermination programs. But it's also taught us so much about how you resist um, and get occupiers out um and and it was a uh, violent movement right the FLN was a violent pushback um and the torture methods yeah a lot of them were tested there and perfected there and Fanon talks about the the haunting and like the psychological impacts of that and like this generation um even the border towns still uh, there's they're never gonna forget and my mom will never forget either um and she didn't live through it right uh but she doesn't forget because of everybody who's told her everything and passed it down um and like the the facial tattoos we have, and like this is like a tattoo that some people would have that's like to mark, so if a, if a soldier disappears or tries to disappear a child, you know where they're from, which village they're from. Uh, so yeah, the tactics were, they come from there. They were just in Jakarta, they successfully disappeared people um, in ways that I can't imagine. Um, but yeah, I think Bevins is thoughtful and does a good job with it. And one thing that actually Shadi and I talked to him a lot about is like his methods and how he went back through the history. and his next project is actually going to be in North Africa, interestingly enough. Um, but um, yeah, I think, I think uh, everything's a blueprint, right? Algeria is a blueprint for Jakarta in some ways, but Jakarta was a blueprint for so much more.
2: Shadi, for you, was this, I mean, academically, you must explore a lot of this kind of stuff, but um, was reading the book like illuminating? Was it, was it something, what, were you discovering new things? What, what was that like for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, so uh, I'm actually an engineer by by uh, my day job is engineer. So okay. so I knew a lot of this, but uh, there were certainly surprises. So for instance, the atrocities in the West uh, in Indonesia gets really focused on the, the period after this in East Timor. Um, so that's really what I was familiar with. So I had none of the context for for um, uh, what happened before that, and I think we can get into in a little bit maybe why Americans don't know about this, mm-hmm. but you know, as someone who knew about what happened in Brazil later and what happened in Chile and Argentina later, I had no idea the the scale of this in Indonesia.
2: And then Henry, for you, finally, what, like, did this book, did the book come as a surprise? Was this, was this something that you had kind of explored before in your academic work? Um, I know that you're not an engineer. Uh, what, what was the, what was the impact of the book on you when you first read it?
3: So, um, I've, I've never been to Indonesia myself, but my, uh, academic work uh, while I was in grad school. Um, I was studying with uh, Indonesian migrant workers in Hong Kong. So I did field work in Hong Kong over uh, a few years, spending from my undergrad to, to grad school. And I built close friendships with uh, Indonesian activists. So I had I have an interest in Indonesia and uh, it led me to watching the, the film, The Act of Killing at one point, um, which, is uh bevan's mentions i think in the introduction to uh, the jakarta method and he says that these that the documentary and his book sort of should complement each other or it can be you know accompanying pieces and i think that's a really i think that's a really good idea on his part because the the act of killing really focuses on the killers uh the people who are still at large who carried out the killing and never faced any consequences for for it um whereas this book really focuses on um i guess you could say vic- like yeah the victims of uh, the survivors of the mass killings um he talks about the aftermath uh, i forget the name of the the woman but one of these stories uh, basically she is still around um she survived the mass killings this is someone who was an activist and now kind of lives as like an isolated person in an urban setting um sort of on a side street sort of ostracized even still uh, sort of known as like, you know, uh, someone who was involved on the wrong side of history, at least, uh, from the perspective, the dominant perspective in Indonesia. So I, I was aware of the, uh, the history of violence there, but this was, I, I thought this was like a very like ethnographically rich book in that it had these, uh, these like very detailed life histories mm. of, um, survivors. And it, it's something that I think, uh, journalists, I mean, it, it, his, his, uh, expertise as a journalist really, really shows in this book.
2: And anchoring it in the humanity. Yeah, it's
3: it's a it's a very like emotional personal book as well as being like super informative from just like a historical point of view. Mm
2: -hmm. And as an aside, um, uh, some of the most harrowing writing describes how some of the resort towns in Bali are built on top of killing fields. And so Nashua, why is there not, why do you think there isn't more awareness in the West about just the the you know, size of these atrocities. What, why is this, why was Indonesia just something that, you know, was completely the West checked out of basically even being aware of that occurring or even their own, you know, culpability and connections to that?
0: Yeah, this is something I think about a lot. And we actually asked Vincent and like mentioned that it's, it's like, for some reason, this extermination program is not as well known, even though it's the largest one, like arguably the largest one. Um, but this is how you like disappear people and like and haunt people, right? There's no reconciliation process, kind of as mentioned. But also, um, it's um, kind of like a, a dead living, right? So it's like in necropolitics, there you're having like these beach resorts and like extraction economy and like people having fun and pleasure um, all over where like cash poor, dispossessed uh, people and like murder took place and was rampant. But it doesn't matter because it's it's a beautiful place for people to go be tourists, and you're never gonna take that part away. Um, unless you do something like Algeria, where there's, you can't really vacation there as a tourist, regardless of the beautiful beaches, right? Like the the French can go to Morocco because it's a big part of the economy for Moroccans. And we let that um, happen there. But um, Algeria, you can't, if you're like, if you're like from France, and you're like a white person, you're not going to have a good time trying to be there and and have fun in the places where um, maybe your ancestors were complicit or benefited from Algeria being such an export for France. So I think with Bali, um, the way that the u.s also had certain investments there or, or material like kind of I, I think it just became a resort place for like this but like um, i think it's like Sunkiss, like the the tuna place right the tuna can people shout am i right it was Sunkiss. that was am i Can't right remember. It was the tuna it was like the tuna like, there's just certain investments that like they're not going to let go of that that are like now american conglomerates um there's like a, literally it's a tuna can Company, I think, or tuna fish, but yeah, I just, I don't. It's, it's kind of disturbing and disgusting. But I don't think people also, when they, when they travel places, ever think of that. But also, those people, their economy hinges on that because of the devastation that happened historically, right? Like they're not going to have their own economy that builds up after just such a mass extermination, and like, there's, there's not going to be a reconciliation process of any type.
2: Yeah, I, I, I mean, any, any post-colonial country uh the the ghosts of history are pretty obvious if you know what you're looking for and it's it's like it's traumatic it's traumatic it'd be traumatic to go hang out in indonesia um let's touch on one or two final things uh shadi the uh bandung era uh Communist Party in Iraq is an interesting parallel. And I was wondering if you wanted to like touch on that a little bit.
1: So I think uh, one thing that accounts for maybe the uniqueness of Indonesia's Communist Party uh, compared to other parties in the rest of the world is that Indonesia's PKI is really, really old. So it was founded in, I believe, 1914. Uh, so, prior to the Bolshevik Revolution. So, what that means is they have, uh, like by modern day communist parties, kind of an in, idiosyncratic take on uh, uh, how revolution should progress. So, their belief was that uh, uh, you have to sh- sort of struggle through capitalism and then get to uh, uh, socialism. Um, so, they're actually aligned with national bourgeois and, and a lot of questions that where other uh, sort of Bolshevik communist parties wouldn't be. Uh, uh, and I think Iraq is, is more in the style of of that later newer post-Bolshevik Communist Party. And it also means that they tended to take marching orders a little bit more from Moscow in a way where uh, Indonesia didn't because it sort of developed on another track.
2: Interesting. Um, okay. And so this is, I mean, this is all, I'd like to explore this more, maybe in the Q and a section of this evening. Um, but, uh, let, let's, let's transition now. And you guys, I got to share some really great news with you. Well, Nashville, you already heard about this, right? Um, you remember what's happening in the Harbinger community in late June,
0: we are going on a retreat.
2: We're going on a field trip. We're going on a retreat. Harbinger has hired, get this, uh, Henry uh, Sadi, you guys will be excited about this. Uh, We've hired uh, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau to conduct an entire weekend retreat of yoga with the entire Left Podcast gang. I I can't wait, it's gonna be so great. Uh, Because basically, you know, it's been like a long and intense year and the Harbinger Media Network is offering our staff a unique event to help them cope with the stress of the pandemic. Uh, we're We're gonna have a great time. So Nashua, how much are you looking forward to this unique experience?
0: highlight of my summer. <laughs> yeah, it's
2: going to be good. Well, Ottawa is a great place to visit and there's just like a lot of fun stuff to do there. So, Henry, I understand that you are a massive fan of um, probably the most impressive statue in the entirety of our nation's capital. Uh, you like the Mama Spider sculpture, Henry, isn't that right?
3: Uh yeah, I love it. I love it. I think it's uh, you know, it's, it's scary, but it sends a sends a message.
2: Yeah, it sends a message. I wonder what that message is. Sh- Shadi, you're, you know, as an engineer, you you were especially interested, of course, in the Defen Bunker. Uh, this is the uh, Cold War era bunker created by the Defen Baker uh, government. So you see the portmanteau they did there, the Defen Bunker. And uh, they actually have uh, escape rooms now, which actually would be incredibly cool. In the Defen Bunker, um, so that's awesome. But Nashville, besides the really yeah, fun... I was
1: going to make fun of this, but that actually looks kind of cool.
2: And Nashua, of course, um, you you like to you you're into sort of like dark tourism. I, I know that about you. So uh, you you're really looking forward to going to the jail hostel, correct?
0: Yeah, love a good hostel.
2: Oh man, it's so grim.
3: In which location are we doing the yoga? Is it under the the spider or in the bunker?
2: Well, apparently Sophie has a whole agenda where we'll be doing it in like multiple places all over. Um, all over the city, uh, which is going to be really, wow. really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. So we're going to have a good time. And that's just, you know, that's just how Harbinger, we spend all our money that we get um, sort of treating our hosts right. And I think that that's really important. Thank you. Yeah. So you guys, I, I, I haven't actually ever lived in Ottawa, but I know someone who has, friend of the show, James, was a Senate page uh, in Ottawa in, I think, 2015 and 2016, and he has a few opinions about our nation's capital. Yes, he's always courting controversy. Harbinger Society's Atlantic correspondent uh, routinely reports from Prince Edward Island on every episode where he's sequestered in an unidentified rural location while his home base in Montreal continues to be racked by pandemic panic. This is Solitary Thoughts with James Brown.
4: It's 2021, and our federal government is still carrying on with the vastly unpopular Victims of Communism Memorial. This memorial has been in the works for over a decade. It's seen site changes, redesigns, and a federal budget of $3 million, then $0 million, then $1.5 million, then $5.5 million, and now, well, who knows how much it really costs now. And while people have slammed the memorial for being partisan, unnecessary, costly, hypocritical, and a hundred other things, to me there's one major problem with this structure. The average Ottawan just doesn't really think about communism. And since it's the fine people of Ottawa that are going to have to look at this thing, why not give them a memorial that actually speaks to an Ottawa-specific issue? Instead of making a Victims of Communism Memorial, we should make a memorial for something that's victimized Ottawa's young and old. That's why I'm proposing a memorial for the victims of the Rideau Street McDonald's. For anyone unfamiliar, this infamous McDonald's is located at 99 Rideau Street, just 400 meters from Parliament Hill. It's been called a public safety concern by Ottawa's mayor and a national historic site by, well, me. You can get a pretty good idea of the place by searching, quote, McDonald's UFC, end quote, on YouTube. The video shows no less than 15 grown men engaged in a full-on brawl right there on the floor of Rideau McDonald's. While the fight itself isn't fun to watch, it's sort of sad, really. Absolute magic happens 38 seconds into the video. Moments after someone in a purple shirt sucker punches a guy wearing a backpack, in the midst of five different simultaneous fistfights, a man reaches into his jacket and pulls out a raccoon. In the midst of chaos, this man holds his raccoon by the scruff of its neck and just displays it for everyone to see. Someone starts shouting, This guy is a raccoon! This guy is a raccoon! This guy is a raccoon! Like this guy is a motherfucking raccoon! But by that time, the raccoon is back in its jacket, and the guy is smoking a cigarette. As suddenly as it began, the fighting stops. This man and his raccoon have brought peace to the Rideau Street McDonald's. The monument will be a solid bronze statue of that man and his raccoon. It will stand 99 feet high, and it will cost 4 million mcdollars to build. Fighting will not be allowed near the monument, but smoking will be encouraged. And it will be recognized across the country as a tribute to all residents of Ottawa, the victims of the Rideau Street mcdonald's
2: four million mcdollars is a lot of money to pay for practically anything but for that statue i, I this i think this might be bold to say but I, I think it's worth it wouldn't you agree nashua
0: yeah and i think i don't know i think that ottawa mcdonald's i think the toronto uh queen spadina mcdonald's can give it a run for its money
3: Ooh.
0: if anybody's from toronto do you know which one i'm talking about henry that, that mcdonald's is like
3: I, I i don't I, i'm not a mcdonald's guy oh <laughs> i Henry's avoid it generally fit and
0: healthy um <laughs> 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 no that that mcdonald okay that can give also the Osington mcdonald's a run for its money but yeah the victims of communist mo- communism monument um it kind of fuels this like red scare bad thing that we still have going on in canada and i think American leftists always are thinking about how uh, there's still like elements and like sentiment of red scare there, but I think Canada, it's way worse. I don't know if Henry would agree. Shadi can weigh in if he has that range.
2: <laughs> yeah, Henry, what do you think?
3: So I went, so what I think is kind of damning, like when I went on the, uh, the website of the private foundation, which is spearheading this, uh, I think it's, it's called like tribute, tribute to Liberty. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went on their website, like, first off there, it's exactly what you'd expect. Uh, Their social media, they're posting, like they're literally posting Jordan Peterson videos where Jordan Peterson is like debunking the communist manifesto. And it's just, so it's like the lowest level sort of anti-communist discourse on the internet. And then I was checking out the supporters. I was expecting to see like private donors or whatever, but instead they have a a list there of uh, letters from every major political party in Canada. So when it was announced, Uh, The Liberals, the NDP, which I was like, you know, maybe not surprised about seeing, (laughs) surprised about seeing there, Uh, the Conservatives, obviously. Uh, They got like Jason Kenney on there, Stephen Harper, uh, and uh, Elizabeth May too Mm making an appearance. So everyone was on board for this.
2: Well, the origins of this uh, monument, this laughable monument are kind of uncanny because it's like way back in 2007, Jason Kenney, now the uh, uh, premier of Alberta, the very successful premier of Alberta, he was the secretary of state for multiculturalism in the Harper government. And he's such a freak. So basically he went to a private park owned by the Czech and Slovak community in Toronto with the Czech ambassador. And he saw a statue called Crucified Again, which is a statue of a tortured man crucified on a hammer and sickle. And it was commemorating victims of Soviet oppression. So Kenny was like, hey, um, I think the public would really like to see a monument like this. And they talked about creating the memorial in Ottawa. So Tribute to Liberty was founded the next year as a charity with the uh, mission of building a monument to the victims of communism. And the nine member board is like, all sorts of people from different former communist states. So there's been this like long saga of it coming into existence. It was basically like a pet project of these uh, complete dipshits during the Harper era. But then my impression from just like researching it a bit is that the Trudeau liberals just kind of like couldn't do much about it. Cause it was like, it, it was hard to actually stop. So they basically like slimmed down the price from like X amount of money to like half as much um, Melanie Jolie, who's the Canadian Heritage Minister, um, she kind of like uh, worked to downplay the the sort of anti-communist aspect of it. But um, the I'm going to read the description of what, what this looks like. And uh, Sadi, maybe you can tell me if this sounds amazing to you. So the arc of memory features two gently curving wall-like metal frames, 21 meters in length and four meters in height. The walls support 4,000 short bronze rods, densely arranged along 365 steel fins, uh, each one pointing at a unique angle of the sun for every hour of every day across a year. The memorial would be split in the middle at winter solstice, the darkest day of the year, inviting visitors to step through in a metaphorical journey from darkness and oppression to lightness and liberty. Uh, I mean, it's inspiring. To, like to hear that description, that's that would be something worth visiting, wouldn't it?
1: That's beautiful. I'm 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 booking my flight right now.
2: Right. Well, yeah, this is a reason for an American to kind of like try to cross the border and and get in on this. Oh, and I got to add one more thing. Harper wanted it to be built. He wanted it built between the Supreme Court and the National Library of Canada. Um, but then the Liberal Party like figured out how to make that not happen. And now it's like half a kilometer more west in the garden of the provinces and territories. So it's at least out of the way. How about this, Nashua? What's go- What what's wrong with Stephen Harper's brain? Like, what is it about him and Jason Kenney that just makes them like this, this against um this sort of boogeyman of communism as opposed to like you know what it actually was in a lot of ways because they're all just thinking about like stalin like is aren't they
0: yeah i i don't know but his his brain it functions he has a garden in uh israel named after him um he has like a, a bird garden type thing um stephen harper and john tory has a john tory's dad has something so john Tory's is our our uh, mayor yeah so there's there's something there's some interesting connections to other monuments and gardens and and greenery and occupied places and yeah i i think jason kenny and stephen harper share like two brain cells um yet they have so much power um and stephen harper's son actually is moving his way up in the conservative party so we're going to see more monuments from them uh his son who throws racist parties um so yeah, I think I think that's what's happening. I think this sounds horrible and it's a waste of our tax money. Um, well, that's how I feel, but it'll bring Shadi here, which will be okay.
2: That'd be great, yeah. And I don't think that's controversial, Nashua, because I guess like, so with the whole kind of conversation surrounding this, this monument that's gonna be like complete in a minute, like, you know, tomorrow it could be complete. It's coming right away. And it's like this sort of, cognitive dissonance for Canadians where it's like um, when we talk about maple washing actually progress report just had Luke Savage on the Jacobin staff writer to talk about this notion of maple washing where it's basically like making Canadians think that we're great and not completely like monstrous ourselves and you know Canada has a 20th century history of terrible collusion with like really bad regimes and um, Albert Advantage and Rob Rousseau on 49th Parahel have both had Tyler Shipley on to talk about his book, Canada in the World, Settler Capitalism and Colonial Imagination. And if you listen to those interviews, you're just like completely astounded that there's this complete forgotten history about the truly terrible things that Canada's actually been involved in. Like we're, we're not a heroic country whatsoever. So Henry, tell me a little bit more about that, This this sort of like continued collusion uh from the 20th century and into the 21st of of sort of bad bad guy canada
3: yeah there uh, if you want to know more about like the general like the uh the 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 long list of uh, those things i would recommend those episodes i wanted to talk about some excerpts from tyler shipley's book uh specifically about indonesia Mm because i i didn't really know about this uh before researching for this episode so the canadian ambassador in indonesia was uh well informed of the violence, this is a uh, Shipley in Canada in the world, but nevertheless described Suharto, so that's the, uh, the military dictator who took over, um, the leader of the massacres as a moderate, sensible, and progressive leader. Indeed, Canada lined up behind Suharto as external affairs gushed, it is patently in our interests that the new regime be allowed to consolidate its internal position. Paul Martin followed up by opening the faucet on foreign aid, even as private capital flowed in. Uh, so it like the, the the collusion was was there in this um, in this example, which I I didn't know about before. Yeah, and this,
2: um, this must have been Paul Martin senior, who was the I guess um, uh, money guy for the Liberal Party back in the yeah yeah. 60s. I mean,
3: Paul Martin junior, I guess, was old but not that old. Anyway.
2: Yeah, well, right. So yeah, his dad. So yeah, like his dad and and the the Liberal elites at that time uh, turned on the faucet for foreign aid, even as private capital flowed in. Inco. Uh, was uh, uh, a major investor and infamous for its operations with the Butcher of Zacapa in Guatemala, but Canada pushed for that too. So yeah, there's there's a million examples like this in Shipley's book, uh, and it's an excellent book and well worth reading. So, so I guess as we begin to wrap up here, I wanna just kind of ask um, a, the question of like, why are Canadian political elites so clueless about our own history and sort of this hidden ideology in Canada? Because we see that happening a lot in the last couple weeks when there is, it's like pushing back against the framing of Israel as the heroic space, like Canadian political elites, they have such a hard time doing this, even when it's so obvious that Israel is like a nightmare zone, right? For like so many reasons. Um, so Nashua, you you had a really excellent episode of Habibti Please recently uh, this week. Um, where you were able to speak with the Palestinian Youth Movement, Toronto chapter, and a bunch of the people who helped to frame the NDP's 2021 resolution finally recognizing um, Israel's apartheid state. So, maybe tell us a little bit more about that episode and a little bit about the work you've been doing.
0: Yeah. So, um, for years, for those of us who have been uh, involved with the BDS movement and the greater Toronto area. uh, we've been trying to, there's there's multiple methods of uh, resistance and pushback here, and um, people who follow Jagmeet Singh know that as of uh, a year ago, uh, he was still going on CJ's podcast. Uh, CJA is, I don't know what the acronym stands for, but uh, a Zionist group, and saying that BDS is awful. Um, there's laws in Canada that Trudeau has tried to pass uh, to make student activism around BDS uh, a crime, uh, and that you can't do it, uh, and criminalize it. And this is despite uh, anytime there's a BDS vote on a campus in Canada. So that's like the, one of the first social movements and work that I did. Um, that the JDL are like these older men who like come and show up, and they will like literally harass young people and young women specifically, and it's very targeted. And they did it again in the Toronto pro- protest, the JDL's mm-hmm. Jewish Defense League. And so um, our politicians, up until this this week, I would say. Um, would not really speak out with the exception of maybe two or three, and they'd be even softer um, with language. But because at the last NDP convention, there was a very organized, concentrated effort by people like uh, Genevieve Joel, Amy Kishik, uh, Omar Bergen, uh, Hamam Farah, and um, Sam Hirsch, Mm -hmm. uh, who are all organizers in their own places like Ottawa, Montreal, Toronto. Uh, There was a huge push uh, to get the uh, NDP to, to take it to a vote every time there's an NDP convention. Uh, The Palestine Resolution uh, somehow manages not to be spoken of. And this time when it finally got to vote because we were in a virtual convention, which we thought would actually maybe uh, ruin the format, um, 80% of the uh, voting body voted in favor of the Palestine Resolution. Therefore, the party has to adopt a stance uh, where they support um, not full, I I would say the language is a little soft intentionally, but... Um, At least now we can name that we should be calling for an arms embargo. Um, Justin Trudeau sells uh, arms, not only to uh, Israel, but also to Yemen. I mean, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, I wish yep. they sold them to Yemen. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, fight back. But um, yeah, like, so, so the history is, it's one where lobby groups here have had a lot of success uh, in painting the narratives. And then you see statements from our politicians typically that pander to that. However, now uh, the party has an official stance and it seems like People are more comfortable in naming what's actually happening on the ground as a result of the party having an official stance. And exactly. I hope I hope there's some also um, some reckoning with the party's past of uh, for example, there was a Palestinian candidate who lost her rightful nomination uh two election cycles ago for her activism. And, and if that happened today, it wouldn't, it wouldn't fly with the, mm. with the party's body. And so I, I don't want us to carbonize uh, here, totally. but yeah, that's well, so, that's kind of the energy. So right
2: and so and it's so important because it's like especially right now having having the having the space for any conversation outside of that norm of of just being pro Israel is so important. And we see it happening in the states too, where because you got uh, Rashida Taib and uh, Ilhan Omar, uh, just like really like strongly standing up, it's just there's room for this conversation to happen in a way that there wasn't even two years ago, right? So how does that look like in the States, Shadi? And like, what do you think is the ask from like civil society on the left in the States or in Canada? Like, like, what's what, what are we asking these essentially leftist politicians, whether it's Canadian social Democrats or American social Democrats, what are we asking them to do?
1: So a little bit about the the background of the States. I mean, I think I, I'm not sure what you kind of alluded to that in Canada, um, that there are efforts to criminalize BDS. Uh, I think it's like, like between thirty and forty states in the United States that have laws on the books against uh, BDS, many of them passed by by Democrats, um, that you know the purportedly liberal of the two parties. There are you know fights and initiatives by the ACLU, but um, the question is specifically naming BDS. Yeah, like specifically uh, like if you boycott the state of Israel uh, personally. Uh, you, uh, the state can terminate any contract that it has with you. So there was a, a teacher. You can read about the story. The Intercept did a good, really good write-up a couple of years ago, uh, where in Texas, uh, a, a teacher uh, was was asked to write a, a statement saying that they did not boycott the state of Israel. Uh, the teacher refused, and and the state of Texas fired her. Um, so that's like the 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 environment that that we're kind of coming from. Um, but that being said, there have been some really, really incredible uh, initiatives. Um, uh, you know, I think uh, to Mark Bocan, my my representative in, in Madison's credit, and uh, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Salib, um and even uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez now. Um, there are real discussions about uh conditioning or cutting off uh, uh military aid to israel and of course that's a far cry from from uh uh making it so that a university can can boycott the state of israel uh or or pull out their their uh, investment holdings um but uh, it's it's uh you know i mean i have a, a substantial amount of Palestinian family here in the us and uh I think all of us are are really surprised at the rate of progress. And of course, um, it's woefully inadequate. Um, And of course, uh, just simply the fact that the politicians are talking about it uh, doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, But uh, these conversations could not happen five years ago. They, they simply could not happen.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And so how about we wrap up Nashville with a call to action? Um, where would you direct people to go put their energy and put their effort and, and get connected and get involved in a way that would be uh, positive and helpful?
0: yeah so um the big call from canadian civil society so this is a canadian uh live show or else I, I will have shadi also give a shout out to some international orgs but palestinian youth movement is uh, transnational i would say i i think put your money yeah okay that's fair um put your money there uh, islamic relief is doing some like so islamic relief canada has a medical aid response so you can donate if you're a canadian and it, it's an easy way to donate uh the way they've, they've built it in is pretty good um, I own Palestine, so media coverage that ma- mainstream media will not provide. So if you're interested in seeing those different narratives, um, we're asking in Canada for people to write the CBC and our ombudsman because of the language. And this is like not the first time that the CBC has had issues. And if you write the ombudsman, they have to publicly respond eventually with the amount of letters they're getting. And they did it last time when the, the radio host uh, had to, uh, does anybody remember when the radio host uh, had that whole incident with the CBC where he had to retract saying Palestine or Palestinian oh, yeah. territories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so we're trying to push right now that people keep writing the CBC ombudsman. So they have to do a whole process again so that they know that people listen and people know, and that's our tax money, right? Mm-hmm. Um, movement to safeguard Palestinian communities is doing pretty good work. Um, so I would, I would give money there as well. Um, and we're asking that people show up um, in front of the Israeli conflict this Sunday at 3 p.m. Uh, it's gonna be a March actually from Young and to the Israeli consulate.
2: That's if you're that's, in Toronto. That's Sunday, uh May 23rd in Toronto in front of the Israeli consulate. Uh cool. Now, Saturday, sure, thank Saturday. You, Saturday, sorry. Thank you for thank you for all of that. And uh Shadi, what about more internationally? Where, where can people put their energy?
1: I would say like like in general, uh uh if you're in the United States, um uh uh Palestinian youth movement is great. Um uh the the medical organizations working in Palestine that the mentioned, I think are great. But uh I mean I think a lot of it really is is do work where you are, right? Because you probably live in a community where that is giving money to Israel. Um so if you're in the United States, um yeah definitely Palestinian youth movement. Or also if you're in a city that that uh is near uh a major college campus, chances are there is a students for justice in Palestine uh branch in your university. Uh chances are they're probably fighting uphill with their university for funding, that sort of thing. Uh any and all help is always appreciated. Um, I, I can't imagine that any of those people would turn them away. And if they do, let me know and I'll yell at them. <laughs> um, uh, because, yeah, I think I think at this point, you know, um, there's only uh, one of the things that the people in Gaza talk about a lot is is the the, the, the donations are great and it's helpful and you should donate. Absolutely. Um, but uh, What often happens, right? The current situation is uh, uh, the UN or or, um, these nonprofits will come in, put in much needed infrastructure, and then Israel just blows it up again. Uh, and so unless you're 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 finding something that deals with any sort of structural way to stop that from happening, that I worry that the cycle repeats.
2: And on that note, that is a wrap for the inaugural live recording of Harbinger Society Presents. We'll stick around for the Q&A, which is going to come up in a second. Thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. This conversation is going to be posted this weekend on the network highlight feed, the Harbinger Spotlight. If you haven't already, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Check the show notes for ways you can help the fight for justice in Palestine. And please support ethnography and Habiti Please at their respective patreon and Substacks, also in the show notes find out more about our unbeatable cross-country lineup of left canadian podcasts at harbinger media network.com henry nashwa you guys want to do a little q a you up for this yeah absolutely yeah i'm good yeah Hear
0: the full Q&A by becoming a Harbinger community supporter at harbingermedianetwork.com and check the show notes for links to everything covered here. This has been episode 14 of Harbinger Society Presents. Thanks for listening.